Quinta Brunson's show, Abbott Elementary, has really struck a chord with folks everywhere. No other show about education has managed to encapsulate the real struggles faced by urban educators like this one has. Even more impressive is how perfectly balanced the portrayal of real-world educational issues is, juxtaposed with laugh-out-loud hilarious lines and deftly witty characterization. As educational podcasters who love a good comedy series, it's time we talk about it. That said, speaking in generalities is not our way, so stay tuned while we utilize our discussion of Abbott Elementary to dig deeper into an important idea in our newest series, The Educator Experience Divide. Join us. Welcome back to the Grounded Learners Guild, the podcast that gets real about education, authentic leadership, and the transcendent power of being a part of a highly functioning team. Here are your very own guildmates and hosts, Casey Veach, Emily Coakland, and me, Jenny Libri. Our newest educators and multi-decade veteran teachers typically don't need or want the same things. For those of us working in teams with or in service of educators, being aware of those needs can be crucial to leading and collaborating with groups with mixed experience levels. So with that in mind, we do see a new teacher come to Abbott Elementary in the form of long-term substitute turned full-time staff member, Gregory Eddy. If Abbott Elementary were to have an instructional coach or a leadership team that was a little less Ava and a little more (laughs) driven to help Abbott's newest full-time teacher succeed, what would be an ideal series of learning experiences and resources be for Gregory? It's our intention with this episode to consider the unique perspectives of rookie teachers and clarify the process for how a coach might approach working with these kinds of educators. We'll also shift from theory to practice using Gregory Eddy, the fourth wall-breaking new teacher at Abbott. So let's go ahead and get started right away. I recently just started watching Abbott Elementary. It was one of those shows where my mom was always telling me, oh, have you watched the newest episode? Have you seen it yet? It's great. I'm like, mom, I live it. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when I was working in support of more urban schools. I'm like, I don't need to watch it. (laughs) But over the past year, I recently started watching it. And just the basic gist for anyone who's new to the show, it's a series about a group of super passionate and dedicated teachers of various experience levels and a slightly, let's be honest, a very out of her depth principal. (laughs) And they work together in a Philadelphia public school. And despite all of the issues with funding and their students' needs, they really are committed to helping provide their students the best education. And they just bond together as a staff throughout the series. Casey, I'm really grateful for the gist. I'm going to play the typical role that I play. And yeah, I haven't watched this one at all, but... You know, maybe one of these days, maybe before our second episode for this one, I'll get myself (laughs) a couple of episodes in. But just a little empathy building for those of us and our listeners who haven't been there or watched it either. And like Casey, I've been watching Abbott, but I will 
I will mention that anything beyond the first season is a bit of a spoiler for me. So I'm continuing to binge whenever time allows. And I'm really, really enjoying it. I heard it described as The Office, but with teachers. And that's pretty much what people, what the buzz about it Mm -hmm. was before I discovered Mm -hmm. it. But I really think it's kind of got its own brand of things going on. So I'm excited to dive into this. It's in that mockumentary style, like where you've got staff interviews or it's a really great heartwarming show that I could definitely see for those people on the outside of education really falling in love with these characters. They're just awesome and an amazing multicultural staff. For sure. So let's first kind of dive in to where this episode is really coming from and why we want to be cognizant of how we can support new teachers. According to a research report from the nonprofit RAND Corporation, the American School District Panel, and the Center for Reinventing Public Education, teacher turnover is at 10% nationally for the past school year, 2022-2023, with those in high-poverty districts, similar to Abbott Elementary, experiencing higher staff shortages. So what are the ways districts are trying to address These staff shortages is by really designing mentoring or support programs to keep those teachers who are new to the profession into the profession. So based on some of the research, I know, Emily, you have acquired some interesting knowledge from your time at NCTE, National Council for Teachers of English. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you've learned? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that was really interesting to me about attending that conference in general was there was a lot of emphasis being placed on the consideration of the needs of pre-service and new teachers to the profession. So I, I really think that industry-wide folks are very aware of this issue of turnover and are really trying to get a handle on what our newest teachers or our emerging educators are in need of. So at one of the sessions that I attended, two researchers by the by the surnames Davis and Chick shared their research that came under the title of Teacher Readiness Lessons from Beginning Teachers. And in their research, they had surveyed a large number of teachers through Columbia University who were new or still in pre-service and were asking these teachers what were some of the things that they really wanted or needed. And I thought the list was really interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. And I'm thinking about before we dive into what that list is, Casey mentioned and Emily, you're mentioning all of the talk nationally. Like what is what -hmm. is the research saying about this and what are conferences saying about this? And I'm also seeing this firsthand from a local standpoint within our own district, and I'm sure you guys are too, but Mm -hmm. in, in the district role that I find myself, even just in the last two years, they've had a significant shift within our district to move and revamp entirely not only our mentoring program, but our new teacher induction Mm -hmm. program and then the wraparound supports Mm -hmm. that go with that. So I have seen and been witness to and and actually been asked to come on board and help partner with the team that does that for our entire K-12 district. And it's been a complete overhaul for what we need to do for the wraparound supports that those teachers need. And it isn't just mentoring and it's understanding what mentoring means and what coaching 
coaching means and what other wraparound supports Mm -hmm. teachers need in order to support them. Because I think that at the end of the day, you know, when we entered the profession, it was like, you got a mentor and go. But there's Mm -hmm. so much, there's so much more to that. So I'm really interested in what we're going to do diving in today about what that looks like and what even Chick and Davis, Emily, you've learned from them at this conference of what that means for us moving forward in supporting our teachers that are coming into this profession so they want to stay. Yeah, I mean, it's timely and it's cogent, but also I love that you threw the term wraparound supports in there because I think that's one that we probably should continue to draw on, that it's more than just one or two things that we need to be offering these teachers. Well, and I think this first one, when I think back to my teacher prep program, I received absolutely no guidance other than maybe a 15-minute reference to a chapter in a book, and it wasn't something that was truly made obvious or intentional to me, so I'm excited for us to jump into this first one. Yes, and you know, this will probably, I'm I'm not going for bonus points here, I promise, (laughs) it will bring us back to some of our early this season episodes, but the number one thing that they were saying they wanted and needed was behavior management strategies, and like you, Casey, I didn't get that either. I was begging for it every time I wrote a paper in my education program. I was like, when are we going to learn about behavior management? When are we going to learn about classroom management? Yeah. It never happened. It's interesting. And and I've heard it called a few terms, behavior management, classroom management, as you just said, Emily. But I also think of like, what does that mean in terms of just building a community? The first two or three yes. weeks of school, really, that mm-hmm. is going to set the tone. And so if we're not really focused on what that means, you can set yourself up for a lot of heartache if we don't know how to do that. And it can be really actually beautiful and fun instead of it always being just yeah. managing behavior or managing act out problematic student issues, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like what you can do to prevent it by setting your classroom up in such a way to make it a conducive experience to learning and community building makes a huge difference. But like who's really got a handle on that their first year? I mean, maybe some very, very special teachers, but it always takes some work and learning and failure. Yep. And I remember the one little nugget that I felt was dangled for me was don't smile. That's what I was thinking. Same one. They told me the same thing. Don't smile till December. I did not hear that at all, but I, oh my God, you guys, what I heard was, you know, like it's easier to loosen up and start strict, but nobody told me don't smile till, don't, I heard that was the follow up, M, to my (laughs) advice. Don't smile till December. It's easier to loosen up on them than, yep. And so I took that to heart and I wasn't being intentional about how I developed my culture of learning in my classroom. It was, you were here, I had information to share, I had discussions to have with you about the texts we were reading. And if I were to go back into the classroom and do things different, like, oh my gosh, that's where I would invest so much time into establishing those routines and building those intentional connections with kids, for sure huge not for nothing that's the one that folks are most clamoring for from what I understand yeah I think I got really lucky in my experience as far as teaching Spanish because one of the trainings that I had early in my my undergrad was when it comes to language 
acquisition theory and what you need in order to speak, you actually do need a lot of connection building and lowering the effective filter so that you are not Mm. nervous to speak. So a lot of times the first two weeks of our school year were really built in those connections that Casey, you're talking about. So I was really lucky Mm -hmm. that that was already kind of built into the curriculum for me, but I can't say that that's often the case for most of our new teachers, right guys? No, especially in core content areas. I feel like it's really, really content, content, content growth. And it's almost like allowing and and communicating to our new to the profession teachers that that is okay. It is okay to carve out the time to build those connections using the strategies that we can do to get to know, like as simple as getting to know each other's names and knowing our stories. And it takes time. And it's something that if you do in a day, you're not really quite doing it. But there's a way you can also integrate it within the content as well, but being meaningful and intentional that you've got that laced within what you're doing. Otherwise, if you jump right into content, you're missing a lot of opportunities. So another thing that they had mentioned in the study that folks are looking for in their early years as teachers was more constructive feedback. And I think that that one is incredibly big for people's growth and development too. I mean, surely we've talked about this before on the podcast as well, and I know it always comes up when we play Six Degrees of Education, this idea of people Mm -hmm. needing constructive feedback positive feedback, but also feedback that helps with growth and really is specific, targeted, and offering alternatives, suggestions, and things that folks can do by way of making an investment in them. Well, and I think it all starts at the goal. Like, what kind of teacher do you want to be? Or what kind of feeling do you want your students to have when they walk into the classroom? And then being able to say, this is your goal. What are some ways that you've lived that in your lesson today and really using those questions to help provide and be that catalyst for that feedback, Mm -hmm. I think is super important, especially for our new staff. For new staff that's wanting to maintain a job, this can be really scary, especially if that feedback is coming from a place that they don't feel safe or just flat out nervous. Let's just think about like if you have your supervisor or someone who's your evaluator, that's the one providing the feedback and they absolutely are going to do that. I think that by having some of those back to the wraparound supports where you have others in the position that they can help support you with that constructive feedback in a safe way, i.e. coaches. Obviously, mm-hmm. we we talk a lot, Emily, as you mentioned, about coaching and the power of that. And when they're a non-evaluator, what that can mean for for them to take risks and fail forward and to feel a little bit more comfortable. Or that coach can even help take the constructive feedback of the evaluator, talk them off the ledge a little bit if it's not as great or something that's a little bit harder for them, and then help move them through the change cycle or what that might look for their instructional practices in a way where they don't feel so alone. And we can help talk them through it not being something that is problematic for their teaching, but more so it's just going to help them become better at what they do. Sure. Mm-hmm. So the next one on the list, I found this one fascinating. And I want to just yell this one from the rooftops because I think to create this support for teachers would be pretty simple and straightforward. And yet, so many people are not getting this. So what the teachers were asking for was what they called a lookbook at Columbia. And what that entails is providing either a printed or digital list of names with pictures and listed roles and then a brief descriptor of when and why you would interact with them. So, so for example, this is the principal's administrative assistant. This is a picture of this person. This is their name. And this is when you would go to the principal's administrative assistant and what you would, what 
what types of things you would ask that person for and so forth all over the building all of the different roles instructional and non-instructional so that teachers coming into a system are able to kind of get to know their folks a little bit better and also just know who to ask for what and not feel so stupid when they ask for help and feel ignorant or like they should know everybody's names faster than the human brain even allows them to. And as a person who's not only been new to the building in the last couple of years at a place like that, that's been really tricky to learn a lot of names quickly. And boy, would something like that be helpful. It's more or less just a cheat sheet for people and getting help. It reminds me of like the next level for the org chart because you're able to see how everybody connects. And we've talked about before, I'm new to my role and we have over 100 people on staff. I've been on the job for five months at this point and I still don't know everybody's names or faces. And I'm the coach, the person who should know everybody's names or faces at this point. So I think that's an awesome idea. Everybody just go do it right now, right? Yes. <laughs> I've had it as well. I, I think that I've seen the org chart, Casey, or we've seen the list. I've never yet seen it with pictures unless I'm just thinking like yearbooks. But that doesn't give you all the information you're going to need. And the yearbooks are from the prior years. So that's not going to work. So I guess I, it's almost like whose responsibility is that to put together? And for programs, you guys are even giving me ideas for what we can put into a district programming is to create that. Now, when a district has multiple schools, what does that look like? And does it yeah. go to the responsibility of the school building to do that? But even templates that can provide those schools to be able to create those just plug and play or pop in those pictures would be helpful. Yeah, precisely. I think providing even something like a template for each building to have its own and then district level could have its own as well. I really think that that could be tremendously helpful for people. And even though it's like it's a lot of entries, the work itself is not complex. It's a pretty simple ask. Who are the people? What do they look like? What do I call them? And when do I go to this person? When would we interact? Another one that's this one seems pretty broad, so I don't really want to live here too long, but I get the need for it, clarity and communication. And I think this is one of the ones that really struck me as not just a new staff thing. Yeah, that's an everybody everybody thing. We talk it all the time. (laughs) So I want to tip my hat to our former district, the one where three of us work together. I think this district, especially when it came to technology, was so clear in what tools students had access to, how you could get into those tools, and clearly delineated who to go to for what thing. Like I said, I've been on the job here (laughs) in my new role for several months, and I'm still not sure as a coach what technology tools the kids have access to and are allowed and not allowed to use, or what tools I as a teacher in the role I have have access to. So even those simple little things of how do I log in to my resources, having that clarity and communication could really be impact the level to which you're using the resources that you have. Again, I I think it's one of those things where you know clear communication when you see it. And unfortunately, when you don't see it, all you know is not this. And I think that unfortunately, a lot of new teachers and, and let's be real, like we'll definitely dig into the metaphor a little deeper, but that's a big problem at Abbott. Ava is not clear or helpful in any of her communications. And you just think to yourself, like teachers there are probably thinking, yeah, 
not this. Another one that came up in terms of folks were kind of looking for more of it was encouragement for self-care. And I'm going to be inserting my own little spin on this here. We've done this episode Mm -hmm. too back in our first season, right? Self-care circus. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So an encouragement to seek out and engage in self-care but I would say in a more authentic sense than just here's 10 minutes at the beginning of our staff meeting. Well, I think one way that you can do that, especially, and again, we mentioned this in our previous episode, but I think we really need to hit this home here because it's easy to forget, is within the climate and culture of the school or the system, if we're not encouraging that, if our leaders aren't modeling that, (laughs) or if there's an overwork or a celebration of the almost working yourself to exhaustion is celebrated, it's going to be really hard for your new teachers to feel like, hey, yeah, we're encouraging you to take care of yourself. No, instead, it actually communicates the opposite. Like if you don't work, if you don't work in this way, you're going to be undervalued or you're not doing your job right. And that's hard too. But if we want our new to the profession teachers to feel like they have the permission to be able to care for themselves, like, hey, seventh period, it is okay that you decide that you want to walk around the building just to get steps in. We see that from other teachers and leaders within our building. They're more likely to be like, okay, that's welcome here. We can do that. If you don't, you might question if that's okay or if people are going to judge you for taking care of your need. And I would just substitute instead of that self-care, like letting teachers know that it's okay to set a boundary. And we'll talk about that, I think, in a little bit, too, with another area. But it's okay if for you to say no if an administrator comes knocking on your door asking you to keep time at a track meet. It's okay for you to really take care of yourself and what you need to say, hey, now's not a good time for that. Thanks for thinking of me. That is a form of self-care. And as coaches, we can really help kind of support those new teachers to say you can set boundaries it's okay I'm glad you actually even brought up that idea of like the track mate the extracurriculars because I do feel like in terms of extra duty and extra assignments and coaching or sponsorship positions like new teachers do take a lot of that load on themselves and that kind of segues into the next thing that I saw on this list as well was time management help so help with managing your time like I really think that idea of setting boundaries and being encouraged to set boundaries goes hand in hand with the ability to manage your time and manage it effectively. Because I do think a lot of times new teachers want to throw their arms around everything that's offered or asked of them so that they can make Mm -hmm. an impact on that school and show themselves to be essential employees, you know? Well, and I think this ties into the other criteria on this list was that professional and personal life balance. If we're constantly doing those extracurriculars and you're not managing that time and the energy that you have to put towards something, you're going to increase the likelihood of burnout and not and feeling resentment and not wanting to stay in a profession that can be so incredibly rewarding. Plus, I don't know about all of you, but at least in my role this year, I'm finding more second career teachers are joining the profession. So there are folks who already have families. I remember I didn't have a family when I first got out. So the, the expectation that I would take a club or do an activity or something, that's much harder when you have a family. So really supporting teachers in understanding that it's okay to have that personal life balance 
can be a hat that a coach wears. Well, and here's some words of encouragement to anyone out there that's listening that is new to the profession, that is in their first or second year teaching or perhaps second career, but still new, right? Or feeling like they're new. And when we think of this time management help, when we think about the amount of time it takes to get really skilled at designing learning experiences, i.e. lesson planning, and the amount of time it takes to be able to really communicate effectively with with your families and all of that that goes into that, you will get more efficient. I guess that's the only word that's coming to my mind, but I don't even want it to be like, it's, it's more than just efficiency, but I'll just stick with that. You will get better at it. It will come more naturally as you go. Those words of encouragement are more so like you will be able to have that professional personal life balance. It will come. You may not be feeling like it or Mm -hmm. you might be feeling like you're treading water right now, but you really want to throw your arms around the time it's going to take for you to, again, communicate with families, to design lesson plans that are effective for students, to be responsive to the data that you're reading. That stuff is where you want to really prioritize your time when it comes to your time management, once you get better at that, then you can start doing some of the other things like, hey, I'd really like to to go to that track meet. I really do want to be a part of the community in this way. But you want to make sure that you're prioritizing those those heavy hitters first. It will come. You will get there. You will be able to find more margin as it comes even just a few years in. I think it's usually year three or four where you start to find your groove, right? So if you're in, if you're prior to that, it'll come. It will. Yep. So the last two that I came across in this list of really well-documented research of what folks are asking for, they seem kind of discipline-specific or maybe department-specific when you look at it from a, a secondary perspective, but I think really crucial in a lot of ways. The first one was help with the process of navigating helping students through special education, learning about what a student's accommodations are, what the process of being a teacher rep at a meeting entails, how you work through the different support personnel in your building and make sure that the student is getting the right level of supports and minutes and everything that they need to be successful in your class. I think that a lot of folks are looking for more guidance on that, especially when they're new. Well, and sometimes as a new teacher too, you will have additional personnel in your classroom, whether that's a paraprofessional, an aide, a co-teacher, and how can we best leverage those people to support the needs of the students in your space, but also the differences between a 504 and an IEP and what my roles are, that is still a language that even 15, 20 year veterans are getting used to. So it can feel like an overwhelming task for for new staff. Yeah. Well, and even for those that work in special ed, like their software is always changing. Their processes Mm -hmm. are always changing. The laws are always getting tweaked a little bit. And so those processes are often in flux. And I think that everybody's just kind of trying to stay afloat for that and make sure that they're doing the best they can for students. But I do like the idea of connecting new staff to special Mm -hmm. education staff with a little bit more intentionality to try to make sure that the processes and workflow for even just this specific year, this is what 
This is what is different. This is what's always been done. This is where this information can be found. And again, back to that lookbook, here's the people that you go to for Mm -hmm. this or that you'll see in your classroom or, you know, that support this specific student who's on your roster. I think that that stuff can be really helpful even just to have that information provided up front. And I would just to tag on there is, I know, Emily, you had mentioned the process of these services and what that looks like, but I'm thinking instructionally too, when you when you learn from and you reach out to and know who to go to to help you through what that looks like, you're actually your instruction is going to improve in terms of differentiation, in terms of instructional moves in the classroom. And what's what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? And you're going to just become a more solid teacher in your practices if you aren't just trying to outsource. I mean, bring them in, have those supports come into your classroom, but also learning from them to be able to apply that to your instructional practices will just bring more depth to your instruction and all students in your classroom, regardless of whatever label the system has given that student is going to benefit from what you can learn from those processes or those instructional moves that help students in our special education services. Preach. Then the last one that I really came across that was of note, but I'm not going to live here very long, particularly because we've already done a three-part series (laughs) on this one, was the folks who are new to the profession were clamoring for more literacy, explicit practice. So, of course, we Star Wars out on that for three episodes. So please go back and listen if you're in the position where you want to learn more about how to teach reading. But I think that's just it. Now that the onus is on teachers to teach people how to read, not just expect that they can read all content material at the same level or at grade level even I think that this is more of a thing now but again that's all there feel free to pop back a couple episodes and check it out yep and the advice I just gave for what it when it comes to the process of special education same goes here whether you are a reading teacher you're teaching reading (laughs) you just are it so you just really want to be well versed in that as well and there is some supports in those episodes we just had a few of them back Emily as I'm listening to our conversation I'm thinking about I can't remember if it's in Atlas of the Heart or one of her other books but Brene Brown made a comparison between the feeling of overwhelm she felt and when she was a waitress Mm. and talking about how just experiencing this overwhelm so much so that you can barely think and process. If I can give one piece of advice to anyone who is coaching new staff, your people are not always going to be fully in their prefrontal cortex mode enough to take the constructive feedback or to really dive deeply into universal design for learning because they are just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. And so often we plan new teacher orientation for the first three days of the school year before staff has shown up when these folks, some of them have just been hired two or three days before. And so some of these new teacher and mentoring program and coaching conversations have to happen on a regular basis, routinely, so that, oh, I forget the word, but you're packaging it in smaller, more digestible bundles so that you don't make someone feel that sense of overwhelm. Like, I have to learn all of this tomorrow, and I haven't even learned the names of my students yet. So just wanted to note for any of our coaches out there, you probably know this already, but 
being aware of all of that information that we just went through, we've got to package it and find ways of bundling it to help make it easier for our new staff. I just want to highlight, especially the word package that you're talking about here, because what that could look like is not oftentimes where we first initially go to in designing and a guilty like being somebody who's been a part of coaching and mentoring programs for many many years now and being a reflective practitioner there are things that we've done to our new teachers and I'm saying we've done to our new teachers the first three days of their basically their when they're on staff for us that is like drinking from a fire hose right which we say we don't want to do I mean we as a group at GLG have talked about like what do we do for professional learning that's not drinking through a fire hose and sometimes it happens and again I want to go back to that word packages like what could we do and how could we package it up that's almost a menu of sorts ways for teachers to come for them to come and access it at asynchronous times. Can we redesign or rethink the way they're able to get into the content, whether it's training or the personalized coaching that they need at the right times where it's not all at the same time, but they know that they have it. Can we build those learning experiences out for them in a different way than just talking at them for three days, right? I think that's why it's so important to realize that actually brings me back to something you said a couple episodes ago, Casey. So when we were doing the Britney Spears episode and you had made your your connection to overprotected, you were talking about new teachers in that. And not to like quote you to your face and make it super embarrassing, but... She loves it. What are you talking about? (laughs) I mean... Lay it on me. Let's just keep the mic drops going, Casey Beach. (laughs) But really, like one of the things you mentioned there was like, I think that there's a tendency to kind of treat new teachers as a monolith and assume that they all sort of need the same things, that they all need the same training. And if we give them this training, then we've done our part. Check. It's Mm -hmm. they're good to go. And I think that that there is a tendency to not be aware of the needs of each individual and when they would come to that type of learning and when they would need it and not packaging it up in a way that's as effective as it could be. But I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the awareness of the individuality isn't necessarily done at that beginning of the year training, that it's something that's more done by a coach or by a mentor or throughout the year on an ongoing basis. So with that in mind, I kind of want to bring us back into Abbott a little bit and talk about Gregory because he, like every new teacher, is a specific individual with a set of needs that's unique. And we need to talk about what those needs are before we can figure out what type of coaching, mentorship, professional learning, and so forth this particular teacher needs. And full disclosure at this point, as we do this for him, this is what we should do for every new teacher that sets sets foot in our buildings. I just... One of the concepts in Abbott that I think is intentionally but also unintentionally funny that when Gregory first starts, he says, I have had this life's goal. I want to be a principal. I went for Ava's job, like never having taught and set a foot in a classroom. (laughs) He thought he was going to be a principal. And, And if you're not in education or even if you are, at least back when I started, the joke around the block was that always the principals 
taught for like three years and then jumped into the administrative <laughs> role. I'm like, at least those folks had classroom experience. Gregory would have been absolutely flipping clueless. <laughs> yes. Um, so we know that he is ambitious. He has these goals. So really constructive feedback would be a place that you really want to start with him. So you have this goal that you want to be a principal. Then let's do what we can while you're in the classroom so that you can learn about what good instruction is, learn how to connect with kids so that you can reach that goal that you have. And I think anchoring whatever you can to that goal is really going to help make things, make the connection between you and Gregory go further. Yes, and I think that another thing I might do in anchoring that to a goal is I would continue to use the word leadership rather than principalship because as you see in the show, his goals do sort of change over time as he really embraces the instructional role and gets in there and has like relationships and a good classroom environment with his kids. His goals start to shift, but I don't think that leadership is off the table for him in any way. I just think it's a different type or a different feeling of leadership than just jumping into a school with with no preparation and becoming a principal. You know, I think just to continue to anchor it in this idea of becoming a leader for the school and learning more to be able to to work with and lead others instructionally. I think, Casey, that's a really good way of putting it. Another thing I would say about him is like, it's not just ambition. I think that there's a degree of perfectionism in Gregory as well. Mm. I'm thinking of when when he's aware that his students need to be more prepared for the standardized testing. He gets in there and he is like drilling those kids. He wants the kids to be successful. But I think as a new teacher, he his perfectionism shows up in how he handles the situation with his class and he is doing a lot of skill and drill type of instruction. So the feedback there could be interesting. I think probably the biggest piece of coaching feedback or the biggest thing that Gregory has to work on is he has, because he knows that leadership is the end goal. He he does not match what you typically think a first grade teacher. So when I think of a first grade teacher, I think of my current child, right? His classroom is full of student roles, student artwork. And you could just feel when you walk into that room that this teacher loves my kid, right? And loves all of her students. You walk in to Gregory's classroom <laughs> And there's like nothing, nothing. So as a coach, I think the first place to start with him would be the the classroom culture. How do we really build those connections with kids? Plus, he carries himself like a future leader, right? He wears the tie. He is very straight posture. Rarely does he come. He's super tall. So rarely does he come down to be at the kid's level. So as a coach, getting him to think about how might that make your students feel or what kind of feeling do you want your students to have when they come into the classroom? Or if you think about what an exceptional teacher would do for their students, what are some things that you can think of to try to really bring and show kids how he cares about them because you know he does he wouldn't have changed from following his dad's career path for him into being Mm -hmm. a gardener yeah into this world he clearly wants to be a part of so that would be another place for what his needs would be 
unlike those of maybe a more seasoned teacher? How do we build that culture of learning? And Casey, just connecting some of the dots of what we just said on the bullets that Emily talked about through what she had learned from her conferences. Again, new teachers asking for, clamoring for the help through whether it's beha- whether you call it behavior management, classroom management, classroom community. Sometimes we think it's the kids and perhaps it's really the way we are approaching it. So Casey, as you're describing Gregory here, and again, I haven't watched the show, but it, I'm, I'm getting kind of a gist here, is like perhaps there's some tweaks that he can make personally or what he can do getting on their level or making the environment such that it might actually curb some of the be- quote unquote behaviors or it might really help set the stage and the tone for the climate of the classroom or what the environment might look like. And then depending on how that coaching could go or depending on how much he's really willing to work with and partner with a a coach. Emily, I want to touch on what you talked about with the the standardized test that he's a perfectionist towards and he wants to make sure he's prepared for him and he's drilling and killing, right? When we think of how we can support him through the coaching cycle is we can actually help alleviate some of that stress or tension when we're like, hey, in our coaching cycle, we're going to have pre-assessment and post-assessment data to wrap this Mm -hmm. coaching cycle up to see if it's having an impact on their learning so that you don't have to be so tightly wound about it. Really, we're going to be monitoring that. That's my job as a coach to help you do that without you having to really be over the top worried about the standardized test because we're going to have the progress monitoring as a part of this coaching cycle. I think that would really help. At least it would for me. I wish I had had that early in my in my teaching to know that I had somebody partnering alongside me so that I could loosen up in that way. Yeah, just sharing the load as far as that goes. And and those achievement cycles can be so very effective, particularly in primary yes. elementary grades. So, you know, I feel like that would really suit his, as we're saying, individual needs in that situation. Absolutely. Another thing, uh, kind of like a final thought about him as an individual, I think that we should bear in mind as we kind of consider what his needs might be as far as professional growth. And we're already kind of jumping in, so just might as well throw this in the mix too. Another thing I would try to provide for him is some assistance, some modeling, and some maybe even scenario training working on communicating with parents. So I'm mm-hmm. thinking back to the episode where the mom keeps bringing the kid in super late, just, hi, sorry, he's here, and then just like leaves and she and grabs. Gregory wants the kid to come on time and has just his mind is blown when he's trying to think of like how to help get across the gap and talk to this mom and get this this child to school on time. And it doesn't actually resolve itself until Barbara literally like books him a nail appointment next to where she gets her <laughs> nails done. And he ends up leveling with the mom and she thanks him for actually like caring about the kids. But he did not know how to approach the mom, where to approach the mom what to say to the mom, like all of the little nuances of communication with parents was missing. And that's an interesting one to me, thinking back to the list of what the teachers are asking for, and they mentioned clear communication. Help with clear communication is another piece of that that we didn't really talk about. But I also think it ties back to the learning community, the culture of learning piece too, because if I know my kids, they're going to tell me about their families. They're going to tell me about Mm -hmm. what they did last night, whether they hung out with mom while she was getting her nails done or what their soccer games were, especially elementary kids. They totally tattle on their parents (laughs) all the time. It's the best. (laughs) And so, yep. 
And so having that connection with your kids can help give you the tools that you you need as a new teacher to in turn connect and communicate with their parents. So definitely, um, I totally agree with you that communication on multiple stakeholder levels is really what Gregory's targeted goal should kind of be around to start to manage and package what he's able to take in and apply right away. I'll even do you one more, like to even consider your classroom community to be a wider community than just you and your students and what they're telling you about your families and to have have families be a part of the classroom community to to begin with. So what type of newsletter, what type of beginning of the year parent communication, what does that look like for his classroom? I feel like my entire first two years of teaching would have been so very different if I had adjusted that mindset of parent as adversary to parent as partner, you know, how do we welcome our parents to be a part of and an extension of the classroom community so that when I had to have hard conversations, it was less about the hard conversation and more about that partnership. Best advice I ever had, and I, it was incredibly meaningful, was that making random phone calls to parents that just said, hey, your kid is really awesome. And I just wanted to tell you, I love working with your your kid. I had a parent come to me when their son, I had their daughter and their son at the same time. So like she was a freshman, he was a senior. And that mom came up to me and said, that was the best moment I ever had as a parent is you telling me how much you thought the world of my children. And it's those moments that we need to create as teachers to help do that self-care. That is self-care right there. It rekindles your connection and love for what you It do. sure does. And Casey, I just want to even highlight right there what you said, freshman and senior. I know Gregory is what first grade teacher you guys said, yeah. but especially if you are teaching in the secondary levels or at the high school level, it's really easy to be like, do I really need to connect with the parents? Because these are really independent learners in my my classroom. But the answer is yes. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Yes. Solid point. So thinking about this, we've already kind of towed the line into what some potential goals or what areas of growth could be for, for Gregory or things that he might be interested in having his learning connected to. So we could maybe kind of do more of, of a sum up of what his learning plan or his goals might look like. And again, it's all very tentative because I'm just going to lampshade the fact that if we're coming up with a if an individualized learning plan for Gregory or any new teacher, it does need to be based in conversation and communication with that teacher himself. And of course, because we're talking about a fictional character, these conversations have never yes. occurred. But in the real world, they absolutely should. And I also do want to kind of point out something that struck me as I was kind of putting this episode together. And so I was thinking we begin this episode talking about what all the new teachers or many of the new teachers are asking for. And then we dig into what the specific individual needs. So I'm going to say it if I haven't already said it with this level of clarity. I think that we provide the new teacher training and ongoing trainings throughout the year for new teachers on the things that came up in that list or that come up in all the lists of 
all the research that's being done on pre-service and new teachers. When we consider them as a group, that's what is done in a training. When we consider them as an individual, that's what's done throughout coaching. I love that delineation. That's awesome. Yeah, yep. we have mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. We have to delineate that because I think a lot of folks think that once that training's done, yep. as long as you've assigned them a mentor, that new teacher is going to be just fine. And that's not what we're seeing, not with those numbers you mentioned with turnover, Casey. So I'm, I'm going to say it again. Train them on the things that all the new teachers need. Coach them on the things that they need and want. Done. Okay. So with Gregory then, let's kind of bring it home. If we're working with him throughout the year, I would say if we're talking about training, there needs to be some training in how one sets out up a classroom community. I would say there needs to be some training in how to communicate with parents and how communication works within the district and within the building. What else? I would just say one of the barriers that might get in the way, and we saw it kind of pure, he found a way to, you know, quote unquote, make it work. But putting yourself out there and developing positive relationships with kids is going to feel uncomfortable. And so finding and supporting Gregory and finding those ways to still be himself, but also to, to make a connection with a student in a positive way. Because I think when we talk about community of learning, there's an added both benefit and challenge that Gregory is an elementary teacher who identifies as male right? So finding ways that he can build those connections, be a support for students without it feeling super uncomfortable or weird for him. So I think that is something he will want coaching on. How can I let my proverbial hair down a little (laughs) bit by still keeping a professional boundary with students? Because those first graders are giant loves. (laughs) And they just want to love and hug on you. And you got to find a way to make that boundary feel comfortable for him. Got to teach him how to dance in the assembly. That's when he and the kids really start to connect as humans. It's so cute. Jenny, I want to also shine a light on something you said earlier, the idea of offering him an achievement cycle when you start to pick up on his anxiety and perfectionism surrounded standardized testing. You already kind of went into depth on that before, so I'm not going to, but I do think that one of his coaching cycles throughout the year, and hopefully there would be several based on what it sounds like, would be achievement-based where, like you mentioned, that you're using the data to help guide the process. And just take some of that anxiety, stress, and need to prepare so intensely off his plate because he is very concerned about getting those math scores up. Yeah, you don't want to do that alone, especially in your first couple of years. And there are most, thankfully nowadays, partners in your building that can support you through that. So take them up on it. All right. Are you two ready for a game? Ready for a game. So we're going to jump back into kind of an old format where we just kind of chat for a little bit and talk about and walk down and reminisce on our first years of teaching. So I have been waiting all episode to be able to throw this in somewhere and it hasn't come up yet. So I'm just going to jam it in here because (laughs) Emily, I have to point out that when I started my very first year teaching, and we were in those first three days of yep. training. You were there. Do you remember yep. this? So we started the same year. And it, although it was not your, it probably was about your fourth year teaching or something like that, just in a new district. Yeah. It was my, yep. I was like baby Jenny, baby Jenny teacher. Oh. And I remember, and it was, I mean, we're going back 17, 18 years now, right? So mm-hmm. um, I just had to throw that in there because 
at least like solidarity some of these maybe you remember my answers <laughs> for some of these in this game because we met when we were baby jenny teacher and somewhat yeah newbie emily baby emily. i would have been a toddler <laughs> <laughs> as far as teachers go <laughs> Okay, so our first chatty question is, what was the best or most useful gift you received as a new teacher? It could be from cooperating teachers. It could be from students, parents, colleagues. Anyone get anything good? So I'll be (laughs) happy to share mine first. So when I... I had my cooperating teacher, and I had two cooperating teachers... In addition to two books on teaching, they also printed out for me interview questions that they used when they interviewed teachers for positions. They're like, we don't know if this will be helpful for you, but we feel like this is a great resource for you as you start preparing for your first teaching job. And I still have those questions <laughs> to this day in my teacher things. And I kind of review them because it, it does help thinking about the kind of teacher you want to be and the role you, you want to have. So that was my most useful gift that I can remember getting. I can tap in here because that- mine is similar in the sense that it came from my mentor teacher. And really, it's nothing all of that earth shattering, but it was a lifeline. And that is a teacher who's been doing it for a while willing to share their resources with you so that you have yes. something to go off of. Now, some of it, you know, you have to be judicious in what works for you and what doesn't and make sure you're customizing it for your learner's needs. But man, it was a lifeline. Both of yours is a lot deeper than mine. <laughs> but, you know, knowing the history, if you listen to our failure episode, my relationship with my cooperating teacher was very different. So with that in mind, my most useful gift came from the boss that I had in my last non-teaching position. And what she gave me was basically recognizance of my neurodiversity prior to me even knowing it. She gave me the biggest and most varied stack of post-it notes that anybody has ever given anybody else. They were different sizes. They were different, like some were tabs, some were bigger. And so as a person who functions with lists and labels and reminders of things and, and is much more functional than I do, she was aware of that, really aware of that as a piece of, of my workflow as a person who worked in catering at the time, which was what I did before I was teaching. And she knew that this was something I used to be a functional adult human. (laughs) And so she gave me this giant stack of post-its and I used them all the time. I had my students use them. I used them. I labeled stacks of papers with them. I labeled things around the classroom with them. I used them to delineate different parts of the classroom where kids would be doing work. And just like to have this just treasure trove of this constantly used resource by me that also just really recognized the way my brain works was kind of special, even though it is just post-its. I mean, cool. who doesn't love a good post-it, especially the special yeah. colors? <laughs> yeah, seriously. I had everything. Not just the yellow ones, great. right? Nope. No, no. <laughs> they were really varied. Lots of fun. So next, we're going to do an analogy using what we know from Abbott Elementary. So Jenny, feel free to do some research here. <laughs> I've already got my answer. I'm all good. Oh, I good. Know. Right. Awesome. Yeah, I love it. So here's our stem or our sentence frame. My first year of teaching mostly resembles the scene in Abbott Elementary where, and then we have to insert an idea because, and then we explain it. So would anyone like to start? 
I can start. So I kind of came in last on the other one. But with this one, I one of the stems that you provided was having to stretch the truth about not having a favorite pizza place. And that is definitely a Gregory moment. He's super picky. <laughs> but I really just think about that not in the sense that I don't like pizza because that's literally my favorite food. But the phrase fake it till you make it mm-hmm. comes up in my brain when I think about new teachers. I think they expect that they have to be authentic authentically on top of everything and just do all the things and he's more or less trying to fake that he likes pizza he says he likes Baltimore Mm -hmm. style pizza but like he's trying so hard to fake it till he makes it to make this connection with staff even though it's unfortunately not an authentic one so I would say in a more authentic way I do feel like I was kind of just like I used to call what I would wear to student teacher conferences my teacher costume Like, I felt like I was faking it until I made it. And then eventually, like, it started to feel more natural. But there was a lot of me trying to just, like, play the role, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. That was actually, Emily, mine as well. Dang. So having to stretch the truth about not having a favorite pizza place because the the staff at Abbott are like, what's the best pizza in Philly? And he <laughs> dodges the question. And my reason is because I, as a lit teacher, I was reading, having to read books sometimes my first year at the same pace <laughs> as my students because of the, the kinds of reading and the levels of, of reading we were doing. And so I felt like when we were having conversations and I didn't have a resource, unlike a public school teacher, because I taught parochial for a while. So I was like, I don't know. What do you think that symbolizes? <laughs> I felt like such a fraud by first couple of years until I really got a sense for what we were doing. So that's why I picked that one. Well, you guys nice. have given four options here on the screen. And for someone like me who has not watched it, I am unable to ad lib something different. And I chose that one too. So clearly Dang. that must be saying something about new teachers and how you feel, especially the imposter syndrome being at a high, which by the way, mm-hmm. I have no shame in trying to get some bonus points, Emily, for this one. We do have that episode yeah, on girl. imposter <laughs> syndrome from season one as well. <laughs> But in thinking of my analogy and why it's that way. So yes, I feel it's also like having to had stretch the truth in that I felt like teaching Spanish, I felt like such a fraud. And we and I mentioned that in the imposter syndrome episode as well of of having to feel like faking it until I could make it. I was not a native Spanish speaker. And I was like, who am I to teach 120 students about Spanish when I'm still such a novice? I felt like such a novice in a second language teaching others that way too. So I I felt like I was always constantly stretching the truth when it came to that. Of course, doing it sincerely and genuinely. But I just think that that's something to say for anyone that's out there new to the profession that you're going to feel that way. <laughs> that You're just trying to fit in and you stretch the truth. Well, I'm so excited for the taste of what's to come, Em. And I, I feel like we're going to be hanging around Abbott for at least one more episode. You are correct. So while we're talking about the educator experience divide, it's really important that while we're considering the needs of brand new teachers, that we also are considering what veteran teachers are needing, looking for, and our best ways to support those who are in the later seasons of their career who are experienced, but obviously still have needs as educators and learners. And so to do that, like Casey mentioned, we're staying with Abbott Elementary, but we're going to be doing some focus on Barbara, a completely different teacher in a different situation. So please join us for that. Maybe I'll do some homework and watch it before our next one. (laughs) Do it, Jenny. (laughs) See you next one. And that's a wrap on today's episode. It's always so fun to be behind the mics talking to you, our GLG fam. 
Thanks for choosing to come around to engage with our guild's content as we passionately continue to advocate for adult learners with transparent conversations about the world of education, impactful leadership, and the power of high-functioning teams. The Grounded Learners Guild is a production of Grounded Learning, LLC. If you'd like to connect, the power of the PLN continues. As always, you can find us on our website, thegroundedlearnersguild.com. While you are there, check out our past episodes, our socials, and learn how you can bring the GLG flavor to your next professional learning event. And yep, you know, your feedback is everything. Feedback is that powerful tool that allows us to be responsive to the topics that matter to you most. If you haven't yet already or are finding us for the first time, leave us a review and hit that subscribe button. You can find us wherever you stream. Thanks as always for tuning in to be a part of the Grounded Learners Guild. That's it for us, Casey, Emily, and me, Jenny, in today's episode. See you all at the next Guild meeting. And don't forget, in the meantime, do your best to stay grounded.